The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. And available Pro Power Onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? Speak softly and carry a big stick. Recognize that? It was coined by none other than Theodore Roosevelt Jr., the epitome of a man's man. In his 60 years on earth, uh, Teddy would go from an asthmatic, bedridden child, too sickly to attend school to being a weightlifter, boxer, mountain climber, establishment-challenging politician, New York City police commissioner, big game hunter, author, assassination attempt survivor, conservationist, cattle rancher, cowboy, war hero, Amazon explorer, and so much more. Find out everything you never knew you needed to know about the complicated and charismatic 26th president of the United States, Teddy motherfucking Roosevelt, today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Hey, Time Suckers, happy Monday or Tuesday or whatever day it happens to be when you're sucking on this suck. I am Reverend Dr. Dan Cummins Jr. Esquire, and this is Time Suck. And those titles are a time suck joke, a uh, little time suck joke. If you're a first-time listener and wondering who the hell refers to themselves with that many titles, uh, that would be uh, email scammers. Pump for today's episode, digging into some very interesting history today. Uh, fellow members of the cult of the curious, appreciate you blowing off work and other life responsibilities to have a little fun, learn a little something new. Love learning new interesting facts about the world we live in and the people who have inhabited it. Glad you do too. Uh, thanks to the time suckers who came out to the Columbus Funny Bone in Columbus, Ohio this past week. Couldn't appreciate the support more. Appreciate the feedback on the new stand-up. And uh, yeah, I'm actually recording this episode from Columbus uh, because I'll be traveling when it hits uh, tomorrow morning on Monday. And uh, so if you hear anything different, uh, you know, it's just uh, I'm at the mercy of wherever I happen to be lately while I'm touring. Uh, huge thanks to Sophie Evans for joining the Bose Jangles research team, giving me a great start to the info covered in this episode. Thanks for all the emails. I am way behind on replying back. So if I haven't gotten back to you, nothing personal. I've barely been able to stay on top of just getting episodes out on time. I mean, I'm talking barely. I'm talking staying up till 6 a.m., getting up at 8 a.m., kind of crazy shit. 
<laughs> trying to get ahead on these sucks. I have a whole business plan. But I don't discuss it, you know, fully <laughs> in each episode, but uh, I just got to pull, push through for a couple more months, and then, uh, then I think I'll be able to get things uh, a little calmed down, a little easier. That's the plan. Or crash and burn. One of those two things. Uh, you guys keep me going, though. You really, really do with all the fantastic messages. Uh, trying to, yeah, trying to get ahead on these sucks soon so I can, so I can get back to you all. Uh, I, I know it means a lot. Uh, you know, you take your time to send in messages, and I and I, and I definitely want to get back to those and respect that time. Uh, a bunch more shows coming up: Hollywood, California, New Jersey, Portland, Oregon, both Seattle and Spokane, Washington, Wisconsin, Michigan, Colorado. More coming up later in the year. Uh, not all of those are on the website yet. I'm just waiting for the venues to post their ticket links. Uh, but just check out the episode descriptions for times and ticket links of upcoming shows. And then timesuckpodcast.com, the, the schedule you can link to from there, uh, will have those new dates as those venues update their information. Uh, updates to previous episodes and a sneak peek at next week's episode at the end of this podcast, Teddy motherfucking Roosevelt, right now. Everyone born into this world, you know, technically lives, their heart beats, their lungs take in and expel air, right? But some clearly live more than others. And I'm not talking about living longer, I'm talking about some people, you know, uh, make it to 100 barely live at all, you know, did they leave the world any different than they found it? Did they leave a legacy? Were they a positive influence on the world? Were they a, a powerful figure, influential in their family or amongst friends or in their neighborhood? Did they get out and travel and see the world? Did they stay home but become known for being a solid guy or a great woman or a nice lady or just a kind man, a helping hand? Well, Theodore Roosevelt lived the lives of a hundred men, maybe a thousand men. He explored the jungles of the Amazon. He fell in love and started a family, lost his love, fell in love and started a family again, refused to let childhood illness define him, becoming a big man, strong enough to deliver a, a, a speech after being shot. You know, he put a successful political career on hold to fight in the cavalry. He boxed at both Harvard and then the White House as president. He was not without his faults. We all have them and we will explore those as well. But overall, there's a damn good reason He's on Mount Rushmore. Several of you have written in wanting a little break from the dark topics we've had recently. This is it. All right? This is inspiring. So let's get pumped up. Let's get American. Let's get full Teddy motherfucking Roosevelt and jump into one of the great lives in American history with the Time's Up timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. October 27th, 1858. Theodore Roosevelt Jr. is born in New York City. He's born at 28 East 20th Street, to be precise, in Manhattan, in a brownstone that was purchased by his grandfather, Cornelius Van Schack Roosevelt, as a wedding present for his father, Theodore Roosevelt Sr. Now, his granddad, Cornelius Van Schack Roosevelt, uh, was also known as CVS Roosevelt, and he is the founder of CVS Pharmacies and the inventor of strawberry lemonade and the yo-yo in a parallel universe where my silly lies are actual truths. Now, uh, CVS stands for Convenience, Value, and Service, if you're curious. I was curious enough to look it up because for some reason I actually did think Cornelius founded the drugstore, and the reason for that is sometimes I'm, I'm a dummy. No, uh, Teddy's paternal grandfather was a successful New York City landowner, a businessman who became one of the first directors of the Chemical Bank of New York in 1844, a bank that would later reincorporate as the Chase Bank we know today. So he did all right for himself. Uh, Cornelius's father was James Jacobus Roosevelt, another successful American businessman born in New York City on October 25th, 1759, whose own father, James Jacobus Roosevelt Sr., fought and died on behalf of early colonists in the American Revolutionary War. Uh, James Ro Roosevelt's father was jo Johannes, uh, Johannes Roosevelt, uh, born in New York in, eight, in 1689, and his father, 
was Nicholas Roosevelt, born in New York City in 1658, before it became New York City and was still called New Amsterdam. The Roosevelts are old, old, old school New Yorkers, true OGs in the history of Manhattan. Now, Nicholas was the first Roosevelt to hold a political office in America as an alderman, uh, which is an elected official of a municipal council. And he is uh, not only the fourth great-grandfather of Teddy Roosevelt, he is also the fourth great-grandfather of Franklin uh, Delano Roosevelt. All right, the uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, the, the two presidents being fifth cousins. I just realized that if I, if I, if I hesitated on his middle name, uh, because you, you always just hear the D, just Franklin D. Roosevelt, probably because people are always like, is it fucking, is it Delano? Is it Delano? Is it who gives a shit? Uh, Nicholas was also uh, an ancestor of Eleanor Roosevelt, Eleanor and Franklin uh, being fifth cousins once removed, with Eleanor uh, also being Theodore's niece, making FDR, and Eleanor super Roosevelt's. So much Roosevelt blood in one marriage. Uh, both Eleanor and uh, FDR would be great sucks. Suck them so hard someday. Uh, Nicholas's uh, father was the first Roosevelt to make it to the New World, uh, Claus Martinzan, uh, Martinzan uh, von Rosenvelt arriving in New, Amster, uh, New Amsterdam sometime in the mid-17th century, possibly in 1649 or 1650, uh, possibly as early as 1638. Old shipping records, not as definitive as historians would like. And uh, he was one of a number of Dutch settlers arriving at the new outpost of the Dutch West India Company. His name, uh, Rosenvelt, was modified over time to Roosevelt, and originally uh, he had a little farm in present-day Manhattan. And the family also had a profitable mill on a small stream uh, which ran between the East River and the banks of Collect Pond. A farm in Manhattan, man. Really hard to imagine that if you've ever been there. Crazy to think that a few hundred years ago, you know, the, the definitive American metropolis was once, you know, wilderness, farmland. Uh, the Roosevelt family tree is fascinating, man. Ken Burns did not do a seven-part documentary series for PBS called The Roosevelt's An Intimate History Without Good Reason. I bring all this up just to establish exactly what kind of family Teddy Roosevelt was born into. Because I think it makes his life all the more remarkable, right? He reminds me of JFK in this way. He's born into wealth, powerful social and political connections, privilege, could have easily just coasted through life, you know, got some cushy job through his family's connections, been a wealthy socialite, drinking, dining, Manhattan's finest bars, restaurants, being invited to the most prestigious parties, traveling, vacationing as he pleases, you know, living a life of ultimate leisure, but no. Just like JFK, uh, he would instead go on to become a, a war hero, a noted author, the president, and so much more. He, di he didn't just rest on the accomplishments of the many accomplished Roosevelts who came before him, men like his dad, Theodore Sr., who was a wealthy glass importer who helped found uh, the New York City Children's Aid Society, the, uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the American Museum of Natural History, and the New York Children's Orthopedic Hospital. So, you know, did some shit, got some shit done. Uh, Teddy's maternal family tree is also noteworthy. Uh, his mom, Martha Bullock Roosevelt, known as Mitty, came from a wealthy southern plantation family and is rumored to have been the inspiration for Scarlett O'Hara from the novel and the movie Gone with the Wind. Haven't read it. Haven't seen it. I know. I know. I'm a monster. Uh, Mitty's father, James Stevens Bullock, was an early Georgia settler and one of the founders of Roswell, Georgia. Uh, her great-granddad was Archibald Bullock, the governor of Georgia during the Revolutionary War, who fought in the war and died in Savannah in 1777. Uh, young Theodore did not appear destined to follow in the footsteps of his notable ancestors. When he was a kid, he suffered from asthma as a child, was unable to attend school, so he was taught by tutors. Homeschoolers, man. What an inspiration you have in Teddy, right? Huh? You don't have to grow up to be socially awkward, shifty-eyed, you know, sweaty palm handshakers just because you went to homeschool. 
Had Teddy been born into a different family of different means and education, life would have undoubtedly turned out very, very different for him. You know, like while childhood asthma is, is rarely fatal now, it was far more fatal in those days. Uh, but Teddy's family, you know, they spared no expense on treating him. He was, uh, he was treated to restful summer vacations where his, where his dad would take him out for, for rides in the family carriage, trying to force, you know, the open air into his boy's lungs. When he wasn't able to go to school, he was taken on uh, educational trips to Europe, the Middle East. When it was discovered uh, that Teddy was also extremely nearsighted, uh, Teddy Sr. bought in the best prescription glasses available, which was a lot harder to do then, you know? You just couldn't go to the fucking the mall, just grab some, <laughs> grab some quick stuff, couldn't, couldn't pop into Walmart, grab something fast. Uh, Teddy Sr. also avoided uh, uh, falling for certain ridiculous asthma treatments that were popular at the time, like smoking cigars. Seriously, that was, a, that was an asthma treatment. Not sure how doctors arrived at that one. Just hey, having trouble breathing, are you? Uh, what I, what I got, I got, I got just a fix for that. Uh, got to get you smoking. <laughs> smoke. Uh, nothing clears out a bad set of lungs like smoke. The, the second you have trouble breathing, inhale as much smoke as you can possibly hold in your chest. And if you, if you can't find a cigar, just set something nearby on fire and, and, and you huff up that sweet healing smoke. Oh, man, doctors used to suck. Uh, uh, Teddy adored his father. Uh, writing years later, I never knew anyone who got greater joy out of living than did my father or anyone who more, more uh, wholeheartedly performed every duty and no one whom I have ever met approached his combination of enjoyment of life and performance of duty. Ah, how do you create an amazing man? Turns out a great dad goes a long way. Uh, despite being too sick for school, young Teddy did his best not to let asthma slow him down. He spent summers in Oyster Bay, Long Island, where despite his health, he led expeditions of local neighborhood kids to explore the countryside. I love how he was just an odd kid, man. Uh, he had an interest in zoology. Uh, I guess that it came from seeing a dead seal one day at a market. He acquired the seal's head, uh, and with his cousins, he started what they called the Roosevelt Museum of Natural History. Just little kids doing that. I love it. Pretty creepy, though. Pretty creepy. Just, you know, young boy uh, playing with the seal's head. That, that's, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's how you know you have a future president on your hands when you, when you catch your son uh, or daughter, you know, playing with the seal's head. Hey, uh, you want to mess around with these uh, Lincoln Logs, kid? You want to throw the ball around? No? Just, just happy with your seal head? Oh, okay, then. All right. Wash your hands when you're done playing with that uh, dead seal head, please. Okay. Uh, Teddy also followed his father's rigorous exercise programs designed to help him overcome asthma as he got a little older, which included hiking, boxing, weightlifting. 1869, young Teddy, only 10 years old, finishes his first book in natural history on insects. It began when he was nine. And, you know, and I say book, you know, technically, it's a notebook, little kid's notebook, but like a, not like a normal little kid's notebook, you know, filled with just fucking drawings of monsters and muscle dudes. This is filled with observations of various species of ants, spiders, ladybugs, butterflies, fireflies, beetles, dragonflies, hawks, minnows, crayfish. Uh, it's now part of a collection at the Harvard College Library. Not, you know, and again, not a published book or anything, but you know, pretty cool. The beginning of an interest in the observance and documentation of the natural world that would help define his later presidency. Whenever young Teddy, that's what he's called, his uh, childhood nickname, Teddy, came from him uh, hating being called Teddy, uh, which is kind of funny to me. He actually hated being called Teddy for his entire life, but <laughs> people called him it nonetheless. Uh, well, when um, little Teddy was healthy, he would explore the woods and trails and observe bugs and birds and animals. T.D. learned the uh, rudiments of taxidermy from John Bell, a famous taxidermist and colleague of wildlife artist John James Audubon, the man the Audubon Society would later be named after. And he filled his makeshift museum with animals that he caught or killed, studied, prepared for display. 
Right at age 12, he donated some of them, a dozen mice, a bat, a turtle, four bird's eggs, and a skull of a red squirrel to the American Museum of Natural History, founded by his father. Eleven years later, he presented 622 carefully preserved bird skins to the Smithsonian. That's a lot of fucking dead birds. Do you hear what I just said? 622. That's a lot of birds that you have to kill and then carefully, like, gut and preserve their skin. That's fucking creepy. <laughs> One time suck subject, Jeffrey Dahmer, gets into taxidermy at an early age, and we all know how he turned out. Uh, T.D. ends up becoming an esteemed presence. Man, taxidermy, what a strange hobby. Like, and, and I'm sure plenty of normal people are taxidermists. I'm sure they are. <laughs> but if my son or daughter was like, hey, Dad, you know what I'd really like to get into? I think it'd be fun to spend a lot of time alone with animal corpses, carefully taking apart their bodies and preserving as much of their skin as possible to stuff and admire later. I mean, ideally, I'd love to have all the shelves of my room completely filled uh, with dead animals. Yeah, sure, sweetie, that'd be great. Um, we'll get going on that right after a few uh, therapy sessions, okay? Would you, would you mind saying everything you just said to me uh, to a counselor tomorrow? 1876, just about to turn 18-year-old Teddy gets his first taste of public school at a little shithole you may have heard of, some little dump called Harvard. He originally chose to study natural history and had considered a teaching career. Uh, from the day of Theodore's arrival in Cambridge, he failed to fit into the Harvard mold. Uh, wasn't a traditional student. His clothes were considered too flashy for many of the more conservative students. Uh, I, like, I like how young, young Teddy was flashy, man. Wasn't afraid to stand out during his junior and senior years. I guess Roosevelt uh, would end up spending $2,400 on clothes and club dues, which was what an average American family could live on very comfortably in those days. Uh, it, it, I guess in the present, it would be about uh, equivalent to $25,000, which a family could not live on. But, you know, that's because of inflation on goods and everything. He had an annual allowance of $8,000, while the president of Harvard <laughs> had an annual salary of $5,000. Oh, young college kid. With, with some money in the family tree and not afraid to live it up. Fuck yeah. Who wouldn't want to do that, man? Uh, well, he didn't just uh, spend everything on clothes. He, he also had a, had a dorm room full of uh, stuffed specimens, uh, you know, m mounted animals. A lot of dead animals in, in, in his dorm room. And again, uh, obviously plenty of people have a normal interest in stuffed animals. Being from and living in Idaho, trust me, I know all about taxidermy. Very familiar with it. But stuff in your dorm room with mounted animals, that's too much. I'm going to say that's too much. Obviously, it worked out okay for him, but uh, for the rest of uh, humanity, uh, save that for after college, I think. You know, again, if one of my kids uh, were to do that, it's not going to not be addressed. Just really, dude, stuffed raccoon and mounted rattlesnake and deer head in your dorm room. Uh, do you just not want to have friends? All right. Or you just want to have the weirdest kids in school be your friends? I mean, if you just want to be an antisocial weirdo, we can save a lot of money on tuition and just let you live in the basement. Um well, Roosevelt made the, he, he made the weirdest work for him. He was a good student. His, his freshman year, he averaged a 75% in his classes. Pretty phenomenal for someone who had just only been taught at home prior to that. By his sophomore year, that number had gone up to 89%. He wasn't, however, necessarily a favorite uh, amongst his teachers. He had a tendency to be argumentative with professors. And once Roosevelt asked so many questions during a natural history lecture that the professor exclaimed, now, now look here, Roosevelt, let me talk. I'm running this course. I love it. Cocky little bastard. Uh, he was popular enough with his classmates uh, to win election to the Hasty Pudding Club. And he was a social club secretary during his senior year. Roosevelt was one of five presidents, the others being John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and John F. Kennedy to have been a member of the Hasty Pudding Club. Uh, the Hasty Pudding Club, by the way, of 1770 is the oldest collegiate social club. Uh, began when the Freemason uh, gave their soul in 1770 to Satan. And also sacrificed a baby to the devil under the light of the full moon in exchange for forming a new country that would be fully and forever controlled by the Illuminati. For his initiation, 
Uh, Teddy promised the soul of his own beloved father, who would die suddenly in less than two years' time in exchange for a successful political career. Anyway, uh, a few years later, uh, no, wait, I, I should address that. The Illuminati shit is not true. I just, I just love to say that because I love how paranoid people get about any group that is A, old, B, exclusive, and C, secretive. That combo, that trifecta drives people insane. Well, what are they, what are they doing there? They must be, must be doing something bad. Or they, why do they have to keep it a secret? I, I think they're sacrificing babies to the devil. Somehow it, it's, somehow it goes to sacrificing babies slash like virgins to the devil real quick. I, I think that's because that's probably, I guess, like the most evil thing you can do. Like I, I have a hard time thinking like w- what would be worse than not only killing an innocent baby, not only like just like just yeah, in front of a group of other people, like in a horrible way, like with a knife or something, killing a baby, but trying to sacrifice its soul to the devil. Uh, they probably just sit, sit around and just uh, laugh about shit like that at the Hasty Pudding Club. Anyway, February uh, 9th, 1878, during his junior year at Harvard, Teddy's father does die. Uh, he dies at the age of 46 on February 9th, 1878, from a gastrointestinal tumor that caused him great pain for months and prevented him from eating. Initially, he kept the extent of his illness uh, secret from his elder son, Teddy. And then when Teddy was informed, he immediately took a train from Cambridge to New York where he missed his father's death by a few hours. So that is a serious bummer. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt biographer H.W. Brands argued that the timing of his dad's death contributed heavily to the younger Theodore's psychology. Since a future president knew his father fully while growing up, but missed knowing his father man to man and therefore absorbed a view of his father entirely in his role as a parent, untampered by, you know, realization of his, any kind of human imperfections. So maybe this is what would later contribute to Teddy working so hard to be that man's man, you know, doing what he thought he would make his dad proud or what would make his dad proud. You know, uh, one of the one of the manly arts his dad had taught him, you know, was boxing, and he would keep that up for many years after his father's death. Uh, Roosevelt didn't participate on any college team sports, uh, but he did gain some local fame for being a boxing tough guy. He did wrestling and boxing at Harvard. He entered several college boxing tournaments while he was at Harvard, and and though only moderately successful, the obvious courage and determination he displayed in the ring won him a small following. Uh, Sometimes Roosevelt's fighting was impromptu. Uh, Frederick Almy, his class secretary, recalls that during a torchlight procession in the Hayes-Tilden presidential campaign, some bystander on the sidewalk said something that Teddy didn't care for, felt it was disrespectful, uh, and then the impulsive young Teddy, according to Almy, just reached out and laid the mucker flat. And mucker isn't some weird, like, replacement swear word for fucker. (laughs) It's just people who are like, you know, uh, protesting some government action. And um, it's it's more, it's a little bit more than that, but that's basically, you know, like the muckrakers, man, they uh, were trying to expose governmental corruption and and often did so. But I just love that he just, you know, he didn't care for what this one guy said and just fucking popped, laid him out flat, man. Man, that's one of my biggest life regrets, not punching a few people when I was younger and it was when it was more socially acceptable. I know that there's a, a whole argument that violence only leads to more violence and you should be able to talk out your differences and it's barbaric and it's immature and blah, blah, blah. And I hear you. I, I really do. However, I do firmly still believe that some people would, would behave a little better, maybe even a little, little better life going forward if, uh, if someone just you know gave them one good hard shot to the face. Not hard enough to like maim them, not hard enough to cause permanent injury, just hard enough to knock them on their ass and just make them think like, damn it, that did not feel good at all. That was both very painful and embarrassing. I should probably not act the way I acted to cause that to happen again. Uh, the best remembered of the Roosevelt Harvard boxing story center, uh, centers around two matches he had in a lightweight tournament at the Harvard gym in March 1879. He won his first match and also won the crowd with one of those chivalrous acts which sporting fans love. Uh, during this first match, when the referee called time, R- Roosevelt immediately dropped his guard, and then the other dude uh, just punched him savagely into the face. 
Like he got, took a hard shot to the face. Uh, the people watching, you know, started shouting, foul, foul, you know, were booing and hissing. Uh, Roosevelt uh, supposedly uh, cut him off. He just cried out, hush, he, he didn't hear. That is so badass, man. Take a cheap shot to the face and then defend the guy who smacks you. Just hush now. It doesn't, doesn't matter. He doesn't hit hard enough to make a difference anyway. And then the next round, you know, just go back to whooping that dude's ass. Uh, in his second match, uh, he meets Charlie Hanks. They both weighed about 135 pounds, but Hanks was two or three inches taller, had a, had a longer reach. Uh, Roosevelt, you know, again, was also nearsighted pretty severely. Uh, he's not like he can wear his glasses in the ring, which made it hard for him to see, you know, and, and parry Hanks blows. And I guess when uh, time was called after the last round, recalls one spectator, his face was dashed with blood and he was much winded, but his spirit did not flag. And if there had been another round, he would have gone into it with undiminished determination. I love the vocabulary of people like, you know, over a century ago. They didn't have our, you know, tech and access to knowledge, but God, they uh, they wrote and spoke better. <laughs> uh, man, guy was tough. No question about it. Crazy that despite like being extremely nearsighted in the days before contacts and corrective vision surgery, he, he even went in the ring at all. All right, during his senior year at Harvard, uh, Teddy presented papers at the Harvard Natural History Society on such topics as the gills of crustaceans and the coloration of birds, still really into studying dead animals. Uh, but then for his senior thesis, he shifted away from nature and conservation and wrote a paper called Practi- The Practicability uh, of Giving Men and Women Equal Rights, which stressed equal rights for men and women and shocked his classmates. Shocked me reading it. Did not see that coming. Did not expect it from that era. I like it, man. Uh, earlier in college, a professor encouraged him to apply his knowledge to politics, not zoology, uh, as a career. And some sources say uh, this encouragement, plus the death of Roosevelt's father, uh, caused him to change his major from biology to government and political science, as Roosevelt wanted to follow in his father's footsteps and have a career in some sort of civil service. You know, He wanted to be the, the tough guy his father admired and also this, the civic leader his, his dad was. And he'd do a pretty damn good job of, of accomplishing both, i got to say. Uh, 1880, Teddy graduated 22nd in his class out of 177 from Harvard, and he also marries Alice Hathaway Lee, a young woman from a prominent Massachusetts banking family, on his 22nd birthday, uh, October 27th. So they take off on a European honeymoon the following spring, and while on his honeymoon, uh, Roosevelt decides to climb to the top of the Matterhorn, a mountain over 14,000 feet tall in Switzerland whose peak had only been reached uh, for the first time in 1865. Of of course he did that. He can't just lay on the beaches of southern France, you know, like a normal dude. He has to climb a fucking mountain, a big one. Scaling this particular mountain, by the way, uh, around this time was becoming fairly popular, and it actually led the little uh, culture there of climbing the Matterhorn led directly to the modern sport of mountaineering around the world. Uh, Roosevelt also begun attending law school at Columbia, and he finished a book he'd, he'd begun while at Harvard, The Naval War of 1812, a book that covers the naval battles and technology used during the War of 1812, and the book uh, was considered in its day and is still considered a seminal work in its field, and it would have a massive impact on Teddy's uh, political career and the formation of the modern American Navy. Boxing, booking, climbing, marrying, taxidermy. Uh, this guy did not know how just to sit back and enjoy being born into wealth. 1881, he starts politicking, right? Actually drops out of school. Uh, Columbia drops out of law school to devote more energy to politics. He starts attending uh, meetings at Morton Hall, the headquarters of New York's 21st District Republican Association, finds allies in the local Republican Party, leading to unseating an incumbent Republican state assemblyman who was part of the political machine of Senator Roscoe Conkling. Now, political machines were political organizations in which either one boss or a small leadership group uh, would command the support of a core of supporters and businesses, usually campaign workers, uh, who would receive political kickbacks for their vote-gathering efforts. And why did these exist? Well, in the 19th century, the U.S. was seeing huge waves of immigration from Germany, 
Ireland, Italy, Poland, uh, and more in U.S. cities like New York. They're just not ready for all these new people. They don't have the proper infrastructure governmentally to handle the needs of all these people. At the time, lawmakers generally saw their jobs as to prevent crime and not much else. So if these immigrants were, you know, uh, unskilled and poor, which a lot of them were, the only way they could get vital help for their families was to become part of some political machine. Politicians might provide them with jobs or money in exchange for their votes. And so because of this, New York politics, super corrupt. And essentially, similar uh, to what Trump campaigned on, uh, Roosevelt wanted to drain the swamp in New York of political corruption. And he gets elected to the New York State Assembly, the lower house of New York State's uh, legislature in 1882, 1883, 1884. His primary focus as an assemblyman is to block corruption. He tries to get a judge suspected of collusion impeached. And even though the impeachment doesn't go through, he makes a name for himself. Right, as someone who will stand up to corruption in the New York newspapers. In 1882, Roosevelt becomes the Republican Party leader of the state assembly. And then in 1883, uh, he allies with Grover Cleveland to pass uh, civil service reform. And then in 1884, he writes more bills than any other legislator in New York, but is then defeated for Speaker of the New York State Assembly. In 1884, not being elected to being Speaker of the New York State Assembly, it becomes the least uh, of Teddy's problems. True tragedy strikes, and he faces one of, if not uh, the very, very worst day of his life. On Valentine's Day, February 14th, 1884, Roosevelt, he's at work in the New York State Legislature attempting to get a government reform bill passed when he's summoned home by his family. Just two days earlier, his wife Alice had given birth to their first child, a daughter. Uh, he'd soon also name Alice in honor of her mother, and he returns home from work to find that his mother, Mitty, had just suddenly died of typhoid fever just six years after his dad died. Now, he clearly didn't think the fever had hit her that hard or he wouldn't have gone to work that day. And then hours, just hours after the death of his mom, his wife Alice dies suddenly of Bright's disease, a severe kidney illness. In his diary, Roosevelt writes a large X for this day and then writes, the light has gone out of my life. And after this terrible day, Roosevelt basically never talks about Alice again. He doesn't later write about her in his autobiography and rarely speaks about her to anybody else. My motherfucker, can you imagine that? You've finally gotten over the death of your beloved father as much as one can. You know, you're 25 years old. You're just getting going in your career. You've got your beautiful young wife. You just had your first child. The future looks so bright. And then the Grim Reaper comes out of nowhere and just snuffs out two of the most important lights left in your life, your wife and your mom. Poof. Both gone forever. You have a new baby. You had no intention of raising alone. And I'm sure for a short time at least, no idea what the fuck you're supposed to do with the rest of your life. I feel like sometimes it's easy to think that those born into wealth and privilege don't have the right to complain about anything, you know? But man, death and illness don't give two shits about who you are. And our struggles to chase our dreams and careers, sometimes I think it's very easy to forget that we often already have everything we need around us, you know, those we love. You never know how long they're going to be there, you know? So soak up every moment that you can. Uh, totally devastated, Roosevelt orders those around him not to mention his dead wife's name. God, man, he must just be overwhelmed with grief. Uh, he abandons politics uh, shortly after that, leaves his daughter uh, Alice with his older sister Anna, a.k.a. Bamie, and at the end of 1884, uh, strikes for a huge chance, uh, huge strikes out for a huge change of scenery and heads out for the Dakota territories to live as a rancher. Now, Roosevelt had originally traveled to North Dakota in 1883 to hunt bison. He impressed his guide when he was there at the time, Joe Ferris, for being determined through bad luck and awful weather to keep hunting. And from Joe Ferris, Roosevelt first learns about the business of cattle ranching. Cattle ranching in Dakota at this time was a boom business. And uh, because of the nutritious grasses of the Dakotas, the recent advent of the Northern Pacific Railroad uh, allows quick access to eastern markets so the meat could arrive without spoiling. And then, after the death of his wife, 
mom and the loss of his election, Roosevelt sees North Dakota as not only a business opportunity but also as freedom, man. He establishes a ranch named Elkhorn, uh, you know, for hunting and ranching. Hunting and ranching in the West proved, a, proved an effective medicine for this grieving politician. Over the next few years, Roosevelt would travel back and forth between New York and his Dakota ranch, you know, visiting daughter Alice and then returning out West, helping with the campaign in the fall of 1884, then heading back to Dakota, you know, by November to help form a regional stockman's association to protect ranchers' interests there. Uh, the year 1885 saw Roosevelt publish the first of his of three books about ranching and hunting experiences. Sometime late in the year, Roosevelt uh, also began to court his childhood sweetheart, Edith Caro. Now, he and Edith would uh, later marry in London on December 2nd, 1886, and they'd go on to have five children together, giving uh, Teddy six children overall. They'd have Theodore in 1887, Kermit in 1889. Ethel, 1891, Archibald, 1894, and Quentin, 1897. And then also raised Theodore's first daughter, uh, Alice. Now, Theodore also enters a race for mayor of New York City in 1886, and he loses it. And uh, then he heads back to North Dakota, you know, with his future political career uh, very much in doubt at this time. But then Mother Nature decides to sour Teddy's North Dakota experience and send him back east getting back on track for politics. Uh, Roosevelt had predicted earlier that the cattle industry of the Badlands, North Dakota, as it currently was being run, was unsustainable. Ranchmen were flooding the plains with cattle, and there was you know, no regulation in the region, and, it, and it was, all the land became very much overgrazed. And then weather conditions throughout 1886 brought his prediction uh, to fruition. A late thaw and scorching summer meant a short growing season, so now not nearly enough food for all these cattle. Uh, wildfires take their toll in certain areas, making you know leaving even less food. And by winter, the, the cattle are severely underfed, and ranches uh, have little feed, you know, that they've been able to accumulate to save for the winter left to supply for their livestock. So, you know, the winter of 1886, 1887, to make it even worse, proves to be extraordinarily harsh. Just kind of like one blizzard after another, you know, quickly buries what little is left of the grazing land, and the cattle end up being found frozen to death where they stood in temperatures as low as negative 41 degrees Fahrenheit. God dang, man, that is brutal, brutal cold. I don't know if you've ever experienced that cold. I have. I've been to like Fairbanks, Alaska, and been to like Minneapolis, Minnesota, and some of these places where when it gets down below like negative 25, it's this kind of cold when you walk outside, your face just immediately turns into like a, a Halloween mask. It just like your face feels like it just freezes hard. You know, it's like uh, you're, you're breathing in becomes painful. Your eyes feel like they're they're freezing. Like it's, it's insane. Your nose, inside your nose, all the moisture in your nose freezes and it feels like you could just like crack your nose. It's, oh, it's unbelievable. Uh, hardier cattle uh, survive a little bit longer. You know, they survive long enough to eat the tar paper off houses in North Dakota before they die. Uh, cows were found dead in trees after the snow melted, having climbed massive snow drifts to reach the edible twigs before expiring amidst the branches. Fucking what a horrible scene that is. Dead rotting t trees, or I mean, dead rotting uh, cows up in trees when spring, you know, hits. Man, I think about stuff like this when I hear people argue against hunting. You know, just like how cattle can become overpopulated, so can deer. And if you don't thin out the herd from time to time, you know, with a little bit of hunting, a, a, a different, arguably more horrific death is going to meet the members of that herd. You know, whether it's mass, mass uh, freezing or mass starvation or some nasty virus. How is a bullet to the head? Uh, more barbaric than fucking being a rotting carcass in a tree. Anyway, uh, tens of thousands of cattle die in the Badlands in the winter of 1886, 1887, about 80% of the total population. Uh, in the spring, the little Missouri swells into its floodplain, surging uh, with, you know, the, 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 the melting ice. 
Now the carcasses of innumerable cattle are just bobbing down the icy river. Again, just sounds like an image out of some like biblical plague. Uh, Roosevelt lost over half his herd in this situation. He wrote to his sister, Mamie, afterwards, I am planning to get out of the ranching business. Yeah, fucking, I bet you are. And then he did get out and he headed back east. I love little moments like this, man. Had, had this devastation, uh, you know, devastating ranching atrocity not occurred, how much longer would he have stayed in North Dakota? You know, what if he would have become, you know, uh, moderately successful in ranching? You know, maybe he wouldn't have gone on uh, to go into politics. Maybe he would have been, a, you know, a minor cattle baron of sorts or maybe a major one. Either way, he's not, he's not going to be, you know, the historical figure he, he, uh, he becomes. You know, not going to be uh, a president. It's interesting sometimes, I think, how huge failures can open even bigger opportunities. I think that's something kind of important when you're having a rough patch, man. It's like, you know, obviously it doesn't always work out. Sometimes a rough patch just leads to another fucking, another rough patch. That's the sad truth of it. But a lot of times, you know, when people get creative, they can really do some soul searching in a rough patch and, and it puts them on a, a better path in life, even better than the one that they thought was great that they were on before the rough patch hit. All right, he did get some uh, cool stories when he was in North Dakota. Uh, he wrote about one in his 1880 book, Ran or 1888 book, excuse me, Ranch Life and the Hunting Trail in early spring of 1886, uh, just as the ice was beginning to break up on the Little Missouri River, three thieves cut Roosevelt's boat from its mooring at the Elkhorn Ranch and they take it down river. And Roosevelt, out of personal pride... And out of duty, as the Billings County Deputy Sheriff chases after them with his ranch hands, Bill Sewell and Wilmot Dow. He wrote, we had no doubt as to who had stolen it or as to who had stolen it. For whoever had done so had certainly gone down the river in it. And the only other thing in the shape of a boat on the Little Missouri was a small flat-bottomed scow in the possession of three hard characters who lived in a shack or hut some 20 miles above us and whom we had shrewdly suspected for some time of wishing to get out of the country as certain of the cattlemen had begun openly to threaten to lynch them. They belonged to a class that always holds sway during the raw youth of a frontier community, and the putting down of which is the first step towards decent government. The three men we suspected had long been accused, justly or unjustly, of being implicated both in cattle killing and in that worst of frontier crimes, horse stealing. It was only by an accident that they had escaped the clutches of the vigilantes the preceding fall. Their leader was a well-built fellow named Finnegan, who had long red hair reaching to his shoulders and always wore a broad hat and had a fringed buckskin shirt. He was a rather hard case and had been chief actor in a number of shooting scrapes. Accordingly, we once set to work in our turn to build a flat-bottomed scow wherein to follow them. An early one cold March morning slid it into the icy current, took our seats, and shoved off down the river. There could have been no better men for a trip of this kind than my two companions, Sewell and Dowell. They were tough, hardy, resolute fellows, quick as cats, strong as bears, and able to travel like bull moose. <laughs> for three days, the three men navigated the icy, winding river among the colorful clay buttes, hoping to take the thieves captive without a fight. A shootout was a concern, for Roosevelt noted that the... Oh, sorry, I was still doing his voice. <laughs> Popped out to where I saw this information. A shootout was a concern. Uh, for Roosevelt noted that the extraordinary formation of the Badlands, with the ground cut up into cullies, serried walls, and battlemented hilltops, make it the country of all others for hiding places and ambusca am ambu ambuscades. Fucking fantastic! The fanciest word for ambush I've ever seen. Ambuscades. A m b u s ambus ambus ambuscades. Fucking ambushes. God damn it, man! People <laughs> people spoke so much better. Like, it is kind of scary sometimes when you, th when you just look at the vocabulary. When you read, like, a letter from, like, the late 19th century compared to almost anything anyone writes now, 
we are our language is terribly. It does make me understand some of you, some of you guys' complaints about when I pronounce like nuclear, you know, wrong and stuff. You're like, God damn it! And I'm like, it doesn't matter. And then you're like, well, kind of it does, kind of it does. Because if we just start slanging everything, you know, pretty soon we're gonna go from the kind of things I've been reading to just like fucking people are hiding. There are people hiding and they find them and they kind of cannot find them. And they try hard fucking to shoot. Just kind of shoot the bad guys in hard and make it hard for them. It's try, They're trying, and that's president, and he found them. And, you know, he did it great. He did it good. Shit. Fucking this guy. He did it so good. <laughs> like, we're all just, in 20 years, we're all going to be talking like that. Anyway, Roosevelt, Sewell, and Dow battled against the elements, enduring temperatures down to zero degrees Fahrenheit, following the thieves for days. And then he says, finally, our watchfulness was rewarded. For in the middle of the afternoon of this, the third day we had been gone, as we came around to Ben, we saw in front of us the lost boat. As I glanced at the faces of my two followers, I was struck by the grim, eagle look in their eyes. Our overcoats were off in a second, and after exchanging a few muttered words, the boat was hastily and silently shoved toward the bank. As soon as it touched the shore ice, I leaped out, and I ran up behind a clump of bushes, so as to cover the landing of the other, who had to make the boat fast. For a moment we felt a thrill of keen excitement, and our veins tingled as we crept cautiously toward the fire, or as it seemed likely that there would be a brush. The men we were after knew that they had taken with them the only craft there was on the river, and so felt perfectly secure. Accordingly, we took them by absolute surprise. The only one in camp was a German, whose weapons were on the ground, and who, of course, gave up at once, his two companions being off hunting. We made him safe, delegating one of our number to look after him particularly, and see that he made no noise, and then sat down and waited for the others. The camp was under the lee of a cut bank, behind which we crouched, and after waiting an hour or over, the men we were after came in. We heard them a long way off, and made ready, watching them for some minutes as they walked towards us, their rifles on their shoulders, and the sunlight glinting on the steel barrels. When they were within twenty yards or so, we straightened up from behind the bank, covering them with our cocked rifles while I shouted to them to hold up their hands, in order that in such case, in the West, a man does not have to disregard if he thinks the giver is in earnest. And they obeyed. <laughs> I can't get over the fancy talk. So much fancy talk going on right now. I love, like, he said all that. Like, you could have said, like, and we found these guys, and they're fucking coming towards us, and we put our guns, and we're like, dude, put your hands up, and they did. He says it just like poetically. It took Roosevelt and his ranch hands over a week uh, to take the captives back to Dickinson, North Dakota, uh, where they were handed over to the sheriff there. Roosevelt must have been a, uh, a pretty just captor because uh, sometime later, ringleader, that Finnegan guy, Mike Finnegan, wrote him a letter from prison saying, uh, part of the letter said, P.S., should you stop over at Bismarck this fall, make a call to the prison. I should be glad to meet you. Dude was dedicated to justice, man. He's a good, good man. You can tell he loved an adventure. He loved tracking those dudes and bringing them to jail. God, he had plenty of money. He didn't need to do that. He didn't need to take two weeks out of his life and risk death by either hypothermia or gunshot, but he felt like it was the right thing to do. It was a just and noble cause that we were after. And, you know, and he just fucking, he loved the rush of adrenaline, clearly. Okay, 1888, Roosevelt tries to rekindle his political career by helping campaign for Republican presidential candidate Benjamin Harrison. Uh, Harrison wins and appoints Roosevelt to the United States Civil Service Commission, a government agency that is constituted by a legislature to regulate the employment and working conditions of civil servants oversee uh, hiring and promotions, and promote the values of the public service. Through his, uh, though his position was kind of like a cushy job, Roosevelt used it to fight relentlessly against patronage, which is the practice of politicians giving political offices to their friends and allies. Uh, Roosevelt's close friend and biographer, Joseph Bishop, described his assault on the uh, spoils system 
uh, by saying, The very citadel of spoils politics, uh, the heathrow impregnable fortress that had existed unshaken since it was erected on the foundation laid by Andrew Jackson, was tottering to its fall under the assaults of the audacious and, irre- and irrepressible young man. Again, man, did every fucking person back then go to Harvard? God damn. Uh, Benjamin Harrison didn't win re-election in 1892, perhaps because of some damage Roosevelt did, uh, actually calling him out for patronage. And Grover Cleveland, uh, uh, who President Harrison had previously beat in the 1888 election, becomes the 24th uh, president of the U.S. In addition to being, he was already the 22nd president. Uh, yeah, he was a, Cleveland was the only U.S. president to serve two non-consecutive terms. And, uh, and Cleveland reappoints Roosevelt to the same position. Uh, then in 1894, uh, William uh, Lafayette Strong, a reformist Republican, wins the 1894 mayoral election in New York City and asks Roosevelt if he wants a job of police commissioner. And Roosevelt, of course, accepts. Seriously, you're going to offer him some manly shit? Of course he's going to accept. Do you want to be a police commissioner? Do you want to do you fight crime? Do you want to be Batman? Yes, yes, of course I do. Uh, and he basically boot camps the police force, uh, implements uh, regular inspections of firearms, uh, implements annual physical exams. He appoints 1,600 new recruits based on their physical and mental qualifications. He has telephones installed in station houses. And I think, you know, like that's important to note there that physical and mental qualifications is because previously it, it had been a lot of that patronage. Just like, yeah, man, my fucking, my brother works at the police. Yeah, you can just, yeah, just get a job with him. Uh, he also goes around late at night, early in the morning to kind of check on his officers, make sure that their posts at their posts. You know, he takes his he takes his jobs very seriously his whole life. Got to respect that. Also, in 1894, Roosevelt meets Jacob Reese, a muckraker. And again, muckrakers were generally considered enemies of politicians because they sought to expose corruption and poverty in the city. You know, through like photography and journalism. But Reese really respected Roosevelt as a man who followed through on promises to crack down on corruption. So, you know, unlike what feels like a lot of politicians today, uh, Roosevelt just didn't, you know, talk the talk. He walked the walk, man. He campaigned on fighting governmental corruption and corruption in general, and that is exactly what he did once he was elected. Got to respect that. Uh, 1896, Roosevelt campaigns again for presidential uh, uh, candidate uh, William McKinley this time, a new candidate. McKinley appoints Roosevelt to assistant secretary of the Navy in 1897 when when he wins, and Roosevelt uh, immediately begins to build up a country's naval strength. You know, he's able to do so because the, the secretary to the Navy was sick uh, most of this time and left just kind of most of the responsibilities to Roosevelt. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt saw, thought by many as the father of the modern Navy. He persuaded Congress to provide funding for modern steel-hulled battleships, among other things. Roosevelt wants particularly, uh, he was interested in Cu- Cuba's independence from Spain, which would correlate with the Monroe Doctrine, which is kind of a proclamation made by James Monroe that there should be no European powers in North America. Uh, By the 1890s, Cuba had unsuccessfully battled Spanish rule in Cuba for a number of years. The U.S. had economic interests in Cuba, uh, mainly sugar, but also mining, and wanted to stabilize the region. Uh, A treaty was negotiated between the U.S. and Spain where Cuba would become self-ruling on January 1st, 1898. However, a riot took place in Havana in January, and McKinley sent the USS Maine down to restore order. And then on February 15th, the Maine is exploded and sinks, and the U.S. declares war on Spain in April of 1898. The first battle occurs in the Philippines, Manila Bay, but subsequent battles uh, occur in Cuba and Puerto Rico. In August, Spain begins negotiating a treaty with the U.S., and then Spain gives up Cuba, Puerto Rico, and Guam to the U.S. for a payment of $20 million. Victory in the Spanish-American War bolsters American patriotism, particularly because it was covered in great detail by newspapers across the country. Roosevelt would make a huge name for himself in this war. Let's talk about the Rough Riders right now. Now, the Rough Riders were a group of some of the toughest and craziest sons of bitches you've ever heard of who became very famous in 1898 for refusing to wear condoms while having sex with many horses, both wild and domesticated. 
wait, no, wait, I can't be right. Sorry, I sorry. No, I was looking at I was looking at a different set of notes for that. The ones I, I wrote down when I was drunk. No, the Rough Riders were the first U.S. Volunteer Cavalry Regiment formed on May 6, eighteen ninety eight. Right, Teddy Roosevelt becomes second command next to Colonel Leonard Wood, and then you know when he re- and he resigns from his post as Assistant Secretary of the Navy just uh, just days after the U.S. declares war on Spain on April twenty fifth. Months away from turning forty, man. How nuts is that? Teddy Roosevelt, he's a 39-year-old politician. He's a married father of six who just decides, hell with this. I'm not sitting in some cushy office while our boys are out there fighting our wars for, for freedom and for pushing the American ideals. I'm going to grab myself a, a rifle. I, I shall hop on the back of a goddamn horse, and I shall shoot me some Spaniards. Uh, newspapers quickly spread word about the formation of this new regiment. Roosevelt and Wood are flooded with applications. The Rough Riders... Uh, End up being a bunch of college athletes, ranchers, miners, Native Americans, hunters, sheriffs, and of course cowboys, primarily from the American Southwest, where people are more prone to to ride on horseback and with a gun. Uh, they trained in San Antonio, Texas, for several weeks, and then depart uh, Tampa on June 13, 1898, landing Cuba on June 23rd. Roosevelt is promoted to colonel because he does have a middle name, actually, and it is motherfucking. And he takes control of the Rough Riders from then on, known as Roosevelt's Rough Riders. My God, I have such an admiration boner right now. Just rock hard with respect and man love. I may have to take off my pants for the rest of this episode. I'm going to hurt myself. Or maybe I've had my pants off the whole time. You don't know. You don't know. Maybe that's how I get my suck on. Uh, the Rough Riders are, are, are most famous for their march up Kettle Hill on July 1st, 1898. After the Battle of Las uh, Gasimas in Cuba, Major General William Shafter, uh, I always want to say Shatner when I see his name, William, <laughs> William Shatner, Captain Kirk, travels back in time to fight in the fucking war. No, Major General William Shafter uh, planned to take Santiago de Cuba, the island's second largest city. Reports of Spanish reinforcements en route to the city caused him to accelerate his plans. He orders head-on assaults against three hilltop fortified positions that made up the city's outer defenses. Entrenchments, blockhouses, barbed wire, several cannon are protecting the Spanish defenders. Uh, they march to, you know, the, the, the march to attack positions is delayed. Unit deployment is confused by this narrow, crowded trail. There's a bunch of enemy fire. At 8 a.m. July 1st, artillery, uh, artillery uh, begin firing on Spanish positions, uh, and then they cease in order to avoid counter-battery fire. And then at 1 p.m., uh, and, and while under Spanish fire, the cavalry's division's two brigades, led by the 1st Volunteer Cavalry under Colonel Theodore Roosevelt, charge and capture Kettle Hill, suffering heavy casualties. Roosevelt himself is exposed to heavy enemy fire. Meanwhile, the Spanish on San Juan Hill tenaciously held back 1st Division's infantrymen. Two American Gatlin guns appear, and their rapid volume of fire lets the U.S. infantry renew their charge and break into the Spanish trenches. At the same time, cavalrymen uh, attacking from Kettle Hill, 500 yards away, take another section of San Juan Hill. By 2 p.m., the last elements of Spanish resistance have been eliminated. The U.S. would lose 205 soldiers that day. Another 1,200 are wounded. The Spanish would lose 215 men. Another 376 are wounded. We had a bully fight, Roosevelt would say at the battle. Also later saying that the Battle of Kettle Hill was the great day of my life. How much does that say about this guy, man? What was the best day of your life? Uh, is it a tie between the births of your kids? Maybe your wedding? Maybe becoming president of the United States. Any mongrel can sire offspring and a coward can become president, but only a man, a real man, can lead a charge on horseback up a Cuban hill under heavy fire and kill some goddamn Spaniards. Huzzah! I don't know if he said exactly that, but I feel like it's kind of was a sentiment. Uh, after returning to the U.S., Roosevelt prefers uh, to be known as the Colonel or Colonel or Colonel Roosevelt. I love it. I guess that's what he wanted to be called the rest of his life, and some people would. He wanted to be called the Colonel, but most people just called him Teddy, which he hated. 
after returning home from battle, the colonel uh, campaigns for governor of New York in 1989 and wins. Right? He's a war hero. Of course he wins. Here he's going to get his first experience with economic and political issues that he's going to face in his presidency, uh, trusts, monopolies, labor unions, consumers, safe business practices, conservation of resources. Roosevelt holds press conferences twice a day to stay connected to his middle-class voters. That's pretty awesome. Passes the Ford Franchise Tax Bill, which taxes public services that were owned by corporations, such as private-owned streetcars. He tries to balance fair treatment of workers with the fair treatment of the corporations that employ them and the consumers that keep their businesses afloat. Uh, later, this uh, his kind of policy uh, of dealing with uh, you know uh, businesses and people and trying to you know come up with a happy solution you know in between the two is would become known as square deal politics, his square deal philosophy during his presidency. In 1899, McKinley's vice president, Garrett Hobart, dies of heart failure, and Roosevelt is added to the vice presidential ticket at the 1900 Republican National Convention by fellow Republicans who think that the vice presidency will actually politically neuter him. This would soon backfire tremendously, and this is something that uh, would come up in his political career a lot. You know, he was very aggressive at exposing corruption. He was not afraid to go after fellow politicians, and he was very popular, you know, with the common people, and I'm sure that scared the shit out of a lot of his fellow politicians. And, you know, got him a lot of en enemies. And at this time, especially, the office of the vice president was just kind of a figurehead position. So they're like, let's fucking get him in there. We, we can't chase us anymore. We can't do a bunch more damage, you know, with businesses we're trying to get kickbacks from. Uh, Roosevelt campaigns for McKinley makes 480 stops. 480 stops in 23 states. Uh, you know, and it, with his reputation as a war hero, uh, McKinley and Roosevelt win by a landslide. Roosevelt doesn't like uh, being vice president. The virtually powerless position does not sit well with him. But he does, while being vice president, uh, he was only vice president for six months, uh, utter one of his most famous phrases, saying, Speak softly and carry a big stick and you will go far. He said that while speaking to supporters about U.S. foreign policy, his uh, philosophy on it, at a Minnesota State Fair on September 2nd, 1901. Now, that phrase would come back to haunt him uh, tremendously later in life when it was revealed that he had been savagely beating his wife and several of his kids with that stick for many, many years. Uh, you can look at the actual stick Teddy used to beat his family with uh, if you check out a very controversial display about his life at the Smithsonian. That's not true. Uh, he, did, <laughs> he didn't beat his family. Please tell me that one of you believed that for a second. He didn't beat his family with a stick. That would kind of change the heroic tone of this episode a bit. Uh, no, September 14th, 1901. No less than, than two weeks after uttering that phrase, which went viral with political cartoonists, Roosevelt is sworn in, sworn in as the 26th president of the United States after William McKinley is shot by an anarchist, Leon Cholgosh, at the Pan-American Exposition just months into his second term. Roosevelt later would say that if Cholgosh had come after him, he wouldn't have fired a second shot, referencing the two shots that Cholgosh uh, had fired into McKinley's stomach. And then Roosevelt becomes the youngest president ever at 43 years old and appalls Republicans uh, who thought they had put him in a powerless position. They're like, God damn it. So October 16, 1901, right away, uh, Roosevelt starts shaking shit up at the White House. He becomes the first president to invite an African-American, Booker T. Washington, into the White House. Gotta love this progressive man, man. He did what he felt was right. May 12, 1902, there's a co-worker strike. Uh, begins in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, during which 14,000 workers end up leaving their jobs, and Roosevelt sent a strong message to workers to never walk away from their job by executing all of them. No, he did not. How intense would that be? No, what he does is uh, you know, he gets involved. The prospect of coal shortages in the winter months did not sit well with him. He decides that the public interest demands vigorous executive action. He summons up union leaders, mine operators, to the White House, a significant gesture for, for you know, a president at that time, and the development of his reform program known as the Square Deal, and he, and he ends the coal strike on October 21st. 
May 22nd, 1902, the president establishes Crater Lake National Park in Oregon. I've flown over that a bunch of times. That is beautiful. Uh, June 17th, 1902, Roosevelt signs the Newlands Reclamation Act, funding irrigation projects for the arid lands of about 20 states in the American West. Now, without this act, there wouldn't be nearly the farmland west of the Mississippi that you see today. So if you're a farmer in New Mexico, for example, well, you can thank Teddy Roosevelt for, you know, giving you the ability to water your crops. Uh, February 14th, 1903, Roosevelt signs a bill creating the Department of Commerce and Labor, the Ninth Cabinet Office, which will itself emerge as two separate departments in 1913. February 19th, 1903, some trust busting. The Department of Justice announces that the federal government will prosecute the Northern Securities Company, a subsidiary of J.P. Morgan, for violating the Sherman Antitrust Act. So again, man, not afraid to go after these people. And you know because of his family ties I spoke about earlier and social connections in New York, he knows these people, Right. Like, like the J.P. Morgans uh, of the world, the, the, the upper echelon executives. I mean, he's seen him at parties and stuff. He knows he'll see him again. He just doesn't give a fuck. Love it. March 14th, 1903, Roosevelt uh, proclaims Pelican Island, Florida. Names it the first federal bird reservation. Probably went down there and skinned about a thousand birds to celebrate or some shit. Uh, May 18th, he didn't do that. May 18th, 1903, uh, Roosevelt is caught up in a sex scandal. Uh, r- rumors circulate of him wearing a one-piece uh, fishnet lingerie outfit in the Oval Office. This type of outfit uh, would forever become known as the Teddy. Still referred to the Teddy today. June 23rd, 1903, it's revealed that the previous entry to this Time Suck timeline is complete bullshit. Uh, the host of Time Suck has gotten carried away. He's doing that way too much right now. Uh, Bo Jangles actually took a big pit bull shit on uh, some of the research papers he's been using for these fucking nonsense updates. And uh, Nimrod is pleased. Hail Nimrod. Okay. Okay. Now I'm refocused. Now I'm refocused. November 3rd, 1903, a revolt breaks out in Panama against Colombian rule. The uprising is sponsored by Panamanian agents and officers of the Panama Canal Company with tacit permission of the Roosevelt administration. Uh, The presence of the American Navy prevents Colombia from crushing the revolt. Uh, why would they do that? Why would they, why would they be so nice to Panama? Uh, November 6, 1903, the United States recognizes the Republic of Panama. You know, they're just, uh, they're just helping out, you know, some little guy, just helping pour a little Panama out of just the goodness of their hearts. Uh, November 18th, 1903, the United States negotiates the hay buno Varilla Treaty with Panama to build the Panama Canal. Uh, the treaty gives the United States total control over a 10-mile-wide canal zone in return for $10,000 in gold plus a yearly fee of $250,000. Ow. That's why the U.S. was recognizing the Republic of Panama. If they had been located where Ecuador is, uh, they would be part of Colombia right now. But they had something we wanted, and a deal is struck. And I don't even actually have a problem with that. I'm just kind of joking about it, but that's how the world works, man. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Uh, that's the way the world will continue to work. In February of the next year, Roosevelt appoints the Panama Canal Commission to oversee construction. June 21st, 1904, the Republican Party nominates Roosevelt for the presidency, along with Charles Fairbanks as his vice presidential running mate. November 8th, 1904, Roosevelt wins a presidential election, 336 electoral votes to 140. Damn. With the exception, uh, exception of Maryland, Roosevelt wins every state north of Washington, D.C., including all the Midwestern and Western states. Holy shit. Democratic candidate Alton Parker, a longtime New York State Supreme Court judge, was his, uh, it was the, Demo- you know, the, the opposing candidate, and he carried the South. And some historians actually think that uh, even tempered Parker would have made a fine president. But thanks to uh, falling into Roosevelt's large, colorful shadow, he ends up as the only major party presidential candidate to never have a biography written about him. So if you would like to learn more about Alton Parker, well, tough shit. Uh, Roosevelt vows not to seek another presidential term after this victory in order to deflect Democratic charges that he would just remain in office for life. Right, because he could kind of sneak into third one, because he got because he got into office, you know, six months after McKinley is in office, you know, he becomes president. So he, that that one doesn't count, even though it's basically a full term. Now he's doing a second. 
Some people, you know, were real worried about him going for that third term. Uh, February 1st, 1905, Roosevelt establishes the National Forest Service. I've heard of it. September 5th, 1905, Russia and Japan signed the Portsmouth Treaty, ending the Russo-Japanese War. Roosevelt played a significant role in mediating this conflict, urging an end to hostilities and bringing both sides to the conference table in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, for his actions. He would win the 1906 Nobel Peace Prize. He'd become the first American to win the award. If you'll remember, uh, this war uh, really accelerated the demise of the rule of the Russian czars, or Nicholas, uh, as spelled out in the Rasputin time suck. Uh, June 8th, 1906, Roosevelt signs the National Monuments Act, uh, establishing the first of 18 national monuments, including Devil's Tower, Muir Woods, and Mount Olympus. June 30th, 1906, Roosevelt signs the Meat Inspection Act and the Pure Food and Drug Act. The legislation calls for both an honest statement of food content on labels and for federal inspection of all plants engaging in interstate commerce. The major impetus for these measures was the jungle. A scathing report on the meatpacking industry uh, written by muckraking journalist Upton Sinclair. Uh, and it was a book that, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt had personally read. This is an excerpt from The Jungle, which if you're a meat eater like myself, you'll be very glad uh, after hearing this, not to be eating meat at the dawn of the 20th century. There was never the least attention paid to what was cut up for sausage. There would come, all the way back from Europe, old sausage that had been rejected, and that was moldy and white. It would be dosed with borax and glycerin, and dumped into the hoppers, and made over again for home consumption. There would be meat that had tumbled out onto the floor, in the dirt and sawdust, where the workers had trampled and spit uncounted billions of consumption germs. There would be meat stored in great piles and rooms, and the water from leaky roofs would drip over it, and thousands of rats would race about upon it. It was too dark in these storage places to see well, but a man could run his hands over these piles of meat and sweep off handfuls of the dried dung of rats. These rats were nuisances, and the packers would put poisoned bread out for them. They would die, and then the rats, the bread, and the meat would go back into the hoppers together. Holy shit. Oh, my God. Wow. Remind me never to eat sausage if I travel back in time to the beginning of the 20th century or any time before that. Holy shit. That is horrific. Oh, just, mmm. What, what did you use to season this sausage? This has an uh, unusual tangy flavor to it. Oh, you know, just the, just the usual. Just uh, some dead rats and uh, a lot of rat shit and some spit and some poisoned bread and some spoiled meat. Uh, mold, sawdust, dirt, and uh, I'm pretty sure that Lawrence took a shit on it. Ugh. All right, December 12th, 1906, Roosevelt appoints Oscar Strauss of New York City to head the Commerce and Labor Department, and Strauss is the first Jewish American to hold a cabinet post. I like it. Progressive. March 2nd, 1907, to get around restrictive language and an appropriation bill restricting the creation of new forest reserves in six western states, Roosevelt issues proclamations establishing forest reserves in affected states before the law goes into effect, all oh, you sneaky badass. Dude did what he needed to get done. Uh, he's a man of action. December 16th, 1907, under Roosevelt's orders, the Great White Fleet, so named because of the boat's color, embarks on a voyage around the world from Hampton Roads, Virginia. Uh, the fleet returns triumphantly on Feb uh, February 22nd, 1909, having been enthusiastically welcomed at many ports and underscoring America's growing naval strength. Right, just kind of showing it off. The voyage would serve as Roosevelt's proudest accomplishment and best example of speak softly and carry a big stick. Uh, proudest accomplishment while in office, I should note, is that, that accomplishment. Uh, January 11th, 1908, President Theodore Roosevelt designated the Grand Canyon in northwest Arizona as a national monument. 
Dude loved national parks almost as much as he loved killing and stuffing the creatures that roamed their grounds. More on that in a bit. During his presidency, he issued executive orders to create 150 new national forests, increasing the amount of protected land from 42 million acres to 172 million acres. Along with the 18 national monuments, he also created five national parks, 51 wildlife refuge, uh, refuges uh, during his tenure. Uh, March 4, 1909, Roosevelt's administration ends with the inauguration of William Howard Taft as the 27th president, and Roosevelt leaves on a year-long African safari in order to avoid charges that he's attempting to run the White House from the shadows. He also left because he had a serious hankering to kill and document a preposterous amount of animals. Again, more on that killing just a bit. Uh, all in all, Roosevelt was a fantastic, popular, and effective president, man. You don't get your face on Rushmore pulling a James Buchanan. Did you rem remember that that guy was a president? I didn't. The 15th and last president before the Civil War, uh, James Buchanan, uh, predicted the day before his death that history will vindicate my memory. And then the day after he died, historians just kept fucking trashing him. Just tra they've trashed his name ever since. Historical rankings of U.S. presidents uh, considering presidential achievements, leadership qualities, failures, and faults consistently place Buchanan either dead last or among the very least successful presidents in history. Well, that wasn't uh, the case for Roosevelt. He was a very memorable and successful president, the first president to issue over 1,000 executive orders more than all of his predecessors combined. He took the power of the executive branch very seriously, he consistently fought on behalf of, behalf of both the natural world with his conservation efforts and on behalf of the common man with his trust-busting and swamp-draining efforts, and greatly strengthened the U.S. military, particularly the Navy, with his naval efforts. Well, in March 1909, after, you know, leaving the White House, Roosevelt leaves New York for the Smithsonian Roosevelt African Expedition. The expedition lands in Mombasa, which is now Kenya, before traveling to the Belgian Congo, now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and then to Sudan. Uh, Roosevelt and his companions kill and trap so very many animals. Uh, Teddy and his son Kermit, who would accompany him on numerous adventures, seemed to be engaged in an epic rivalry to see who could decimate the most African animals. Uh, the president blew away no less than 296 large animals, including 15 zebras, 13 rhinoceroses, 8 elephants, 9 lions, 8 warthogs, a crocodile, 5 wildebeest, 6 monkeys, 2 ostriches, 3 pythons. Meanwhile, Kermit Roosevelt terminated 216 critters, bagging eight lions, three leopards, seven cheetahs, three elephants, seven rhinoceroses, three sables, a lot of gazelles, four flamingos. Of the big game, the hunters, scientists, and their associated porters and support staff ate about half of them, uh, with the rest being skinned, the hides salted, and packed up for return to the Smithsonian's Natural History Museum. Now, if you're a conservationist or environmentalist or just an animal lover in general, I know this may horrify you. But remember, this is a very different time. An understanding of concepts like endangered species and overhunting didn't exist as they do now. And by preserving these animals, Teddy did create a, a lot more interest in environmentalism and conservationism uh, than he would have if he hadn't done that, you know, because now people could see these animals in like you know, American museums, which was, which was a lot of times the only option to see these animals. It's not like they could have the web back then and could just check them out online. You know, for most people, seeing a stuffed cheetah, you know, in a museum was the only way that they were ever going to get to see one. Uh, also, though, to be fair, the dude clearly loved to shoot the shit out of everything that moved. Uh, I guess that probably just goes back to that fascination and obsession, uh, obsession with manliness, right? Like his idea of a man was one who adventured, who battled, who fought, who killed. And I, I'm guessing the big game hunting was just part of that, you know? Of course he liked to explore jungles and kill and examine everything inside of them. Uh, it's, not, it's not actually weird to me that he did this. It would be weird to me if he got really into, like, crocheting all of a sudden, you know, or took up building tiny replica boats and putting them in bottles. Well, anyway... So you feel, feel what you want to feel about uh, his hunting. Uh, that's just my kind of take on it, and that's what he did. Uh, Roosevelt returns to the U.S. in 1910 and is immediately disappointed with how much Taft is not like him. 
Uh, he doesn't ask Roosevelt uh, who he should appoint to his cabinet, doesn't prioritize conservation, hasn't even considered riding into war on a horseback and killing some Spaniards, and he makes Roosevelt fucking sick. And Roosevelt decides to cut his goddamn head off and carry it around the White House screaming, Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Okay, maybe he doesn't take things quite that far, but he does not like Taft, doesn't like how he's doing stuff. And he does really want progressives to take control of the Republican Party and publicly breaks with the conservative Taft administration in August of 1910, when Roosevelt gives a speech in Kansas advocating new nationalism, which emphasizes uh, prioritizing labor over capital interests, controlling monopolies, and he proposes a ban on corporations contributing to political campaigns. Man, just radical shit. Roosevelt and his crazy notions of equality, his crazy notions of basic rights for the common man. He's really out there with these beliefs. Well, Roosevelt still campaigns for Republicans in the 1910 state elections. However, on the state level and in Congress, the Republicans are slaughtered. And Republican progressives try to reorganize the party. Then, furious with Taft and other Republicans, Roosevelt decides to run for president. He starts to envision himself as the savior of the Republican Party, saying, I will accept the nomination for president if it is tended to me. And if the people make a draft on me, I shall not decline to serve. Well, Roosevelt doesn't win the Republican nomination. Taft wins it. Uh, and then Roosevelt decides to give both Taft and uh, most of the Republican Party the proverbial middle finger. At the GOP convention, he moves all of his supporters into the auditorium theater and creates the Progressive Party, which was known as the Bull Moose Party after Roosevelt told reporters, I'm as fit as a bull moose, and is now a three-party election. Right? And then on October 14, 1912, while campaigning in Milwaukee for his new party, uh, Roosevelt runs into a little campaign snag, gets shot, gets shot by John Schrank. Now, Roosevelt was at the Gilpatrick Hotel at a, dinner, uh, at a dinner provided by the hotel's owner, a supporter, and Schrank, who had been following Roosevelt uh, from New Orleans to Milwaukee, went to the hotel. Uh, the ex-president just finished his meal. He was leaving the hotel to enter his car when Schrank shot him. According to documents found on Schrank after the attempted assassination, Schrank had written that he was advised by the ghost of William McKinley in a dream to avenge his death. And then the ghost of William McKinley pointed to a picture of Theodore Roosevelt. And there you go. Man, all the weird dreams in the suck lately. Last episode, Salem Puritans are getting hanged for appearing in other Salem Puritans' dreams as violent witches. Now Teddy Roosevelt's getting shot because of appearing in somebody else's dream. You know, good reminder that you shouldn't pay attention to your dreams. You know, I'll be honest. I haven't looked into the validity of, of dream analysis, but it seems like a bunch of cockamamie horseshit to me. I had a crazy dream a while ago about something terrifying, and you know what I did? I ate breakfast, and I fucking forgot about it, and I went on about my life as if I'd never had it because it was a dream, and I live in the real world. But I shouldn't be so hard on Shrank. Uh, the guy wasn't playing with the full deck. Uh, he was missing a, a whole suit or two. Soon after the assassination attempt, doctors examined Shrank and reported that he was suffering from, quote, insane delusions, grandiose in character. He was committed to the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Wapan, Wisconsin in 1914 and remained there for 29 more years, dying on September 15, 1943 of bronchial pneumonia. Well, the bullet Shrank shot uh, at Roosevelt passed through the eyeglass case in his pocket and through 50 pages of the speech he was going to give. And then Roosevelt, with his experience in natural science, knew that since he was not coughing up blood, the bullet had not reached his lungs, so he did not need to go to the hospital quite yet. Man, and how crazy is that? That because of him being nearsighted, right? So he has an eyeglass case in there. Because of him being a very thorough, hardworking dude, he has 50 pages of a speech in there. And it's the combination of that that keeps him alive. That is so awesome to me. And then he delivers the speech with blood seeping into his shirt. You know, takes, waits 90 minutes before accepting medical attention. His opening remarks are, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know whether you fully understand that I've just been shot. 
but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. Mother, that is, that is the most badass thing. Again, admiration boner. Steel right now. Complete steel. He's 53 years old when this happens. Can you imagine that? You're, 50, you're a middle-aged man. You just shrug off a bullet to the chest. That seems like something like, uh, you know, some action hero does in a movie where you're like, that's, that's a little much. That's a little much, Van Damme. That's a little much, Steven Skull. Yes, I'm going back with these references. All right? Seems like maybe something in real life, possibly for a 25 or 30-year-old Special Forces Navy SEAL kind of dude might be able to do. Not a 53-year-old politician. You know, when I was younger, I used to daydream about doing that kind of stuff, about being that kind of tough. Probably because I used to watch a lot of, you know, Van Damme, uh, you know, Chuck Norris, Arnold Schwarzenegger-type movies. I have no delusions about that now. There's no way I would give a speech after that. No way! Even if, a, even if the doctor with me was like, um, you're actually not, not hit that bad. You, I, I think you'll be fine to deliver a speech, and then we'll just go to the hospital after. I'd be like, are you fucking crazy? I just got shot. What kind of doctor are you? Well, you'll be fine to deliver a speech. Easy for you to say, doctor, I didn't get shot in the goddamn chest. I don't feel so good. I feel, di- I feel dizzy. I have, uh, tell my kids I love them. You're barely bleeding. You don't tell me how to die. You did not tell me how to die. Uh, despite the heroics of persevering through that speech, uh, Woodrow Wilson, the Democratic governor of New Jersey, would win the 6.1 million, uh, million votes and 435 electoral votes needed to become president. Roosevelt would win 88 electoral votes and 4.1 million votes. And so, yeah, the third party candidate did not win. Never has, probably never will. But he did do better than an incumbent president, even though incumbent politicians are rarely unseated. For example, the percentage of incumbents seeking re-election and winning it in the House of Representatives is around 85% for the past 50 years. Uh, Roosevelt also received more of the popular vote than any third-party candidate in history uh, has before or since, getting 27.4% of the popular vote. Uh, I still think he should have won based on past performance combined with speaking, uh, you know, after taking a bullet to the chest. Too bad they didn't have, like, televised debates back then. I think I feel like Roosevelt just could have beat that to death on TV. And why do you think the American people should vote for you, Mr. Wilson? Well, I want to stimulate the economy by reducing tariffs. I'd like to establish the Federal Trade Commission to protect consumers and prevent the formation of monopolies. I I would like to improve international trade relations by ridding toll exemptions for U.S. merchants traveling through the Panama Canal. I I want to, to build America's prosperous future while preserving its magnificent past. Very good, very good. And and you, Mr. Roosevelt, uh, uh, why do you think the American public should vote for you? Well, if a bullet to the chest couldn't stop me from giving a campaign speech, uh, Woodrow, I'd probably cry like a milksop. Wilson shouldn't be able to stop me from kicking ass for four more years in D.C. Cut to standing ovation, cut to landslide victory. But that doesn't happen. After his defeat, 1912, Roosevelt leaves for a South American expedition in 1913. So many more creatures to find, kill, skin, stuff. He gets support from the American Museum of Natural History, loads his many, many guns, promises to annihilate any non-human creature he'll, he'll encounter. Uh, Roosevelt describes his Amazon adventure as his last chance to be a boy. I love the sense of adventure and curiosity this dude had. He was a time sucker before there was a time suck. Now, when they got to South America, uh, they decided to add a goal. They wanted to find the headwaters of the Rio de Duvida, a.k.a. the River of Doubt, and find uh, where it connected the Amazon River. It was later renamed the Roosevelt River in his honor. This expedition begins on December 9th, 1913. They start down the river on February 17th, 1914. And and so many adventures ensue. The explorers are stalked by a band of natives uh, who end up shooting one of the explorers' dogs with arrows. 
a local porter named Julio uh, shoots and kills another Brazilian member of the expedition. And uh, when he's caught stealing food and takes off and isn't caught, Teddy is uh, bitten by the very venomous coral snake. Luckily, his boot kept the snake's fangs, snake's fangs uh, from reaching his skin. Teddy's son, Kermit, uh, nearly drowns when his canoe flips over in some rapids. Another man in, in the same canoe uh, in that incident does drown. In another boating mishap, Roosevelt jumps into the water to prevent his canoe from crashing against some rocks, injures his leg terribly, gets tropical fever. The leg injury is so bad, he'd have to endure emergency surgery on the riverbank, which sounds terribly painful. Uh, the bullet was never recovered. Uh, that bullet that was never recovered from the assassination attempt earlier worsens, you know, with the, with the new infection. I'm guessing it was just probably too risky to take that bullet out, maybe, with an operation. Uh, or maybe maybe he just uh, was <laughs> just wanted to be that tough. Maybe he just told the doctors, you know, when they were like, we're going to take that bullet out, you know, a couple years before this. Just, he was just like, fuck it. Leave the bullet in my chest. If I feel like ridding of it, I'll just reach in and rip it out myself. Uh, Roosevelt becomes delirious with infection, develops a fever that hovers around 103 degrees. At one point, begs the team to continue without him because he felt like he, uh, he was a threat to the survival of the others. My God, the son of a bitch was tough. Well, of course, they don't leave him, uh, you know. Uh, and, and then uh, what, what ends up happening is he loses over 50 pounds because of fever and injury before he returns to New York in May of 1914. Uh, to be fair, he did have some pounds to lose. That bullet in the chest earlier had jacked up his workout routine a bit over the past few years. <laughs> you know, he put on some weight. His expedition uh, charted successfully a new river for American maps, a river nearly 1,500 kilometers in length, which is very impressive to me. And while his findings for that river were initially disputed, like basically some people just didn't think that was possible for him to do all that, subsequent expeditions did confirm his findings. But man, he paid for those findings, didn't he? For the rest of his life, uh, he would be plagued by flares of malaria and leg infections that would require surgery. 1914, World War I breaks out, and Roosevelt argues for a harsher policy against Germany, and particularly German submarine warfare and the atrocities in Belgium. Congress gives Roosevelt the authority to establish four divisions, similar to the Rough Riders, to go to France. How cool is that? But then President Wilson chooses to send troops under General John Pershing instead. Damn it. Uh, Roosevelt's young son, Quentin, uh, would fight in this war. He'd be shot down behind German lines on July 14th, 1918, at the age of 20. And Roosevelt was tremendously proud of his son's service. He had, he had once said regarding his sons, I would rather have them, no, sorry, I would rather have one of them die than to have them grow up as weaklings. <laughs> My God, the man never softened as he aged. Tough as nails to the very end. Uh, a lot of guys would be slowed down by malaria and constant leg infections and that bullet lingering in their chest, but not the bull moose. He still imagines himself running for president in 1916, again as a Republican, but conservative leaders still don't like him. That's a problem with speaking softly and carrying that big stick around, man. The people you used to smack around with it tend to remember getting hit, and they don't care how quiet you were when you smacked them. And then on January 5th, 1919, Roosevelt starts suffering from some breathing problems. He asks his servant, James Amos, to turn off the light, and he goes to sleep. During the night, Roosevelt dies at 60 years old after a blood clot travels to his lungs. After receiving word of his death, his son Archibald, Telegraphs his other siblings saying, the old lion is dead. He died in Oyster Bay, New York, the same place he loved exploring, finding that seal's head back when he was a kid. And that is the end of an epic Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. So, wow, what a life, huh? There aren't any more adventures like Teddy Roosevelt anymore. Probably because we've run out of real estate to explore. You know, I think guys like Elon Musk are going to be the next adventurers. You know, space being the, the next Amazon rainforest, the next African jungle. Now, to be fair, not everyone thought Teddy was amazing. The biggest stain on his legacy is his opinion of Native Americans. The most horrible quote attributed to Teddy Roosevelt is, the only good Indians are dead Indians. Damn it, that is harsh. 
hard to get more harsh. It's actually kind of a, a bit of a misquote, and there's variations of it online. Uh, the real quote, one I found in numerous sources, is, I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are the dead Indians, but I believe nine out of every ten are. So still pretty harsh. Uh, Roosevelt said that during the January 1886 speech in New York, and uh, he also said, I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the 10th. And then, the most vicious cowboy has more moral principle than the average Indian. So why did he have this opinion? What formed this? Uh, you know, because other than that opinion of natives, I mean, he seemed overall especially uh, progressive for the times he lived in. Well, I, I think the following exchange he had is revealing in March 1905, Geronimo, uh, Chief Geronimo, was invited to President Theodore Roosevelt's inaugural parade. Uh, actually, Roosevelt had five uh, real Native American chiefs at this parade who wore full headgear and painted faces, rode horses down Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, the intent, one newspaper stated, was to show Americans that they have buried the hatchet forever. That's, oh, you know that guy high five somebody because of that pun. <laughs> they buried the hatchet, get it? Because the Native Americans use hatchets. <laughs> I hate corny humor like that. Uh, after the parade, even, even though I probably do a fair amount of it on the suck, I just hate it with others. I'm, I'm that person. I, I like it when I do it, but I hate it when others do it. Uh, after the parade, uh, Geronimo met with Roosevelt in, in what the New York Tribune uh, reported was a pathetic appeal to allow him to return to Arizona. Now, he wasn't allowed to go back to Arizona. He'd been taken away from Arizona after various uprisings he'd had there against white settlers. But then Geronimo, after this parade, says to, uh, to appeals to President Roosevelt, uh, take the ropes from our hands, Geronimo begged, with tears running down his bullet-scarred cheeks. Through an interpreter, Roosevelt told Geronimo that the Indian had a bad heart, saying, you killed many of my people, you burned villages, and you were not good Indians. The president would have to wait for a while and see uh, how you and your people will act on the reservation. So, you know, basically for Roosevelt, uh, kind of a dick, you know, not even kind of, uh, when it came to Native Americans. And also I feel like with him, they just were on the wrong side of the war. You know, they were on the wrong side of his philosophy where he just saw himself as a proud defender of the American people. And as someone, as we realized talking about, you know, uh, his cavalry, uh, cavalry exploits during the Spanish-American Spanish War, somebody who would violently defend American interests. And I think he just saw, you know, uh, Native Americans, you know, sometimes as a threat to those interests. And he clearly didn't care for them fighting back which I guess I do understand on a military level. Like, it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right, but I understand it. To me, it's like when you hear an old uh, World War II, an old white dude veteran, you know? I guess it doesn't have to be a white dude. Some old American, as I'm getting at, some American World War II veteran, you know, refer to, like, Germans as Krauts or the Japanese as Japs. Not cool. Not right to do that. Uh, but when it's coming out of the mouth of somebody who lost friends to uh, German soldiers or to Japanese soldiers, someone who who tried to or did kill German soldiers or Japanese soldiers in a war... You at least get where they're coming from. You get where the animos animosity stems from. Uh, and yeah, Teddy, man, for a man who was so into conserving nature, he was just strangely against preserving Native American traditions. He was a he was a big believer in assimilation. He wanted natives to uh, you know just say goodbye to their traditions and form new ones as Americans. Uh, Tweed Roosevelt, his great grandson and interim director of the Theodore Roosevelt Association, addressed it this way. When asked, he said in his presidency, he wanted the Native Americans to experience the American dream, but do that by assimilating. The Indian population had been shrieking for a long time, and he believed that if they assimilated, that meant prosperity for everyone. Well, maybe. Maybe he meant that. I, I guess so. And, and, and there you go. You know, there you go. I don't even know what else to say in that. He wasn't a perfect man. I'd like to think that if he was alive today, he would feel very differently about Native Americans. Yeah, you know, let's, let's believe that maybe. Or maybe when, we became, you know, when it came to Native Americans, maybe he was just a huge asshole. Uh, I guess there's always that possibility. Okay, so that's that. So that is, I didn't, I didn't want to not address that. Now, let's quickly look at a few other aspects of Teddy's life with some weird facts. Weird facts. 
Weird fact number one, the teddy bear is based on Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, Teddy refused to shoot a black bear that had been tied to a tree on a hunting expedition in Mississippi back in 1902, calling it unsportsmanlike. It was tied there because he was having by some other people he was with because he was having trouble finding a bear to shoot. Well, word of this hit newspapers across the country, and a political cartoonist named Clifford Berryman picked up on the story and drew a cartoon showing how President Roosevelt refused to shoot the bear while hunting. Uh, the teddy bear tie came then when uh, when when Brooklyn New York candy shop owner Morris Mitchum saw Clifford Berryman's original cartoon of the bear and he had an idea. Uh, he put in his shop window two little stuffed toy bears his wife had made and he asked permission from President Roosevelt to call these toy bears teddy bears. And then the you know, he got permission and then the rapid popularity of these bears led Mitchum to mass produce them, eventually forming the ideal novelty and toy company, the originators of the teddy bear. All right, second weird fact. Uh, Roosevelt once gave his son Archibald Archie a pet badger when Archie was nine. The badger was named Josiah and had, quote, a temper that was short, but a nature that was fundamentally friendly. Archie would carry this little badger around, hold him in his arms, uh, clasped firmly around what would have been his waist. Well, when it was suggested by his dad that the badger might take advantage of the situation and try and bite his face, Archie, seeing this as an, <laughs> I love this, a, quote, unworthy assault on the character of Josiah, replied, he bites legs sometimes, but he never bites faces. So lucky that thing didn't attack him. Badgers are a notoriously ill-tempered and aggressive animal. Uh, third weird fact, President Theodore Roosevelt uh, apparently had his family crest tattooed on his chest. I can't find a picture of this. I don't, know if there, I don't know if one exists, but it comes up all over the place. It comes up all over the place online, like a lot of articles, not just weird websites. Uh, and, you know, and tattoos were much more rare, but certainly did exist in Teddy's day. And so, you know, uh, maybe he really did have a chest plate. So fucking cool and so perfect for a badass president. All right, last weird fact. Apparently, while President Teddy uh, used, to, used to skinny dip in the uh, Potomac River, uh, after strenuous walks along the Potomac, the president on occasion would shed off all his clothes and take a plunge in the river to cool off. Can you imagine if Trump did that today or if Obama had done that? Probably get impeached or something of their mental health evaluated. If a presidential candidate did that right now, wouldn't matter what their voting record was. Wouldn't matter what their life accomplishments were. Career over. For, forever. I mean, former Vermont governor and one-time presidential hopeful Howard Dean, he lost his career over a weird scream at a rally. Waving your dick around on a riverbank? You're done. You're done forever. For sure. Times have changed. Weird. All right, so that's some weird facts about Teddy Roosevelt. thought I'd throw that in there today instead of doing the Edit to the Internet segment. I know that's, uh, you know, I know you guys don't like that one. I, uh, I never hear anything good about that one. So uh, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. We have time to check in real quick with, with some idiots, actually one idiot, but he is, he is exceptionally idiotic, so I hope you enjoy this. Idiots of the Internet. The History Channel did a cool series called The Presidents, and uh, and on YouTube you can you can watch the Teddy Roosevelt segment. It's a great video, actually. Highly recommended if you if you need more Teddy in your life after this episode. Now, second comment down under this video, user Mister Az Rancher writes: He understands peace because he was a warrior. He knew to conserve our land because he was a hunter. He put Americans first over party politics because he was an American first great man. Nice comment, man. Very cool. Not idiotic at all. However, it turns out to be incredible idiot bait. Because then a supreme idiot, user give me the details, replies with the real Teddy dot dot dot. And then provides a link to a page on a website called Tomato Bubble. And it's one of the worst websites I've ever come across. It's horrifically ignorant. Uh, the page I, I, linked, I linked to, you know, clicking on that link, features a picture, a picture of Hitler 
and then a picture of Teddy Roosevelt on the top, and it provides the following caption in between the two photos. It says, One of these men is generally regarded as a cold-blooded monster, the other a warm-hearted champion of the common man. What do you think? And then it goes on to argue that Teddy Roosevelt is a bigger monster than Hitler. Are you fucking kidding me? Here, here's the evidence for this claim. There's a series of side-by-side photos in like this table, you know, just going down, showing uh, how much worse Teddy is uh, than Hitler. <laughs> the first is Hitler feeding a baby deer, right? And that one's contrasted with a picture of, you know, Teddy Roosevelt leaning on the body of an elephant he shot. The next is a photo of Hitler hugging and caressing his dog, uh, contrasted with uh, a photo of Teddy kneeling above the body of a leopard he shot. Then there's the next picture, which is, you know, Hitler feeding another baby deer. And then Teddy standing behind a rhino he shot. And then about 10 more of the same shit. It's just one picture after another of Hitler would be nice to some little animal and then contrasted with Teddy with the dead animal. You know, Hitler with the deer, Teddy with (laughs) fucking cheetah, whatever. Then there's finally a photo of Hitler with a cute little kid on his lap titled Vegetarian. And the caption, he could not bear to eat meat because it meant the death of a living creature. What are you fucking talking about? This website has to be run by some just dumb shit Holocaust denier. What what do you mean he couldn't handle the death of a living creature? Right? The dude commanded unprecedented slaughter all across Europe, oversaw the extermination of millions of Jewish people. Oh, but he wouldn't eat a deer? So that makes him a better person than Teddy Roosevelt? You piece of shit. That is such a special kind of dumb, if you believe that insanely disgusting, just horribleness. This photo, this vegetarian, the little girl in the, in the vegetarian caption is contrasted with a pic of Teddy uh, labeled as a trophy hunter, as if being a trophy hunter is a bigger sin than being the architect of mass genocide. Wow. Well, user Top Gear Owns doesn't care for Give Me the Details link either and posts, Give Me the Details. What a stupid website. It's almost like, never mind all the Jewish people and other minorities Hitler was responsible for killing, at least he didn't kill animals. Hitler was a monster who plunged the world into chaos. Teddy Roosevelt won the Nobel Peace Prize for preventing war. Get your facts straight. To which dipshit McGee, a.k.a. gave me the details, responds not once but twice. Uh, First with, Hitler was a monster who plunged the world into chaos. Who started the war, retard? Oh yeah, class act. Throwing around the word retard like it's still 1990. And then he posts again writing, what a stupid website. LOL, okay, ha 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 ha. A lot, of, a lot of ha-has there. Truth hurts, LOL. Truth hurts? No, stupid hurts. Stu- stupid hurts. And your comments are especially painful because there's so much stupid in them. There's so much. Give me the details responds with logic, uh, which we all know really works in these situations. Says, pretty sure Hitler started the war. You know, with the whole invading other countries thing, Poland, Belgium, France, etc. Give me the details comes back with an even more uh, stupid response than before. He says, pretty sure Britain and France declared war first. Duh. I love people who say, duh. Duh. After the, after the commies, yeah, not a lot of doctors probably, like not a lot of like PhDs throwing out duh in a comment. Uh, after the commies and Poles uh, slaughtered many helpless Germans inside of Danzig, etc. And after Hitler pleaded with Poland to stop the killing many, many times, Hitler finally had to do something, anything. Did you go to public school? And then he refers to another page on the Tomato Bubble website, uh, a page advertising a book about the real truth of World War II, one that makes Hitler uh, some kind of sweet pacifist victim. What the fuck? User, give me the details. Did you go to any school at all ever? I, I, I feel like you just have never left the Aryan Nations compound you were born on. Just born and raised there. Never ceases uh, to amaze me how, how exceptionally ignorant some people are. Flat earthers, Scientologists, this motherfucker, people who just willfully oppose obvious truth, man. The rest of the commenters turn on give me the details, and he just keeps trying to send them to, to more tomato bubble pages, the website. I'm, I'm guessing he's running. Uh, go there yourself if you need uh, further examination into the staggeringly ignorant mind of today's exceptional idiot, 
of the internet. Idiots of the internet. internet. Okay. Okay. So to wrap up, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, sadly, no friend of Native Americans, but he was definitely no Hitler. And overall, uh, he was an incredible president, man. Overall, incredible president. He, he had, a, had a legacy that was vast and profound. And, and I think we should take one more look at it. One more look at America's 26th president with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Teddy Roosevelt was an incredible conservationist when the National Park Service was created in 1916. Seven years after Roosevelt left office, there were 35 sites to be managed by the new organization. Roosevelt helped create 23 of those sites. Number two, Roosevelt's presidency oversaw the creation of the Panama Canal, the most important international shipping development of the 20th century. The American Society of Civil Engineers has called the Panama Canal one of the seven wonders of the modern world. Number three, in 1898, Roosevelt resigns from his post as assistant secretary of the Navy to command a bunch of cavalry volunteers and lead them up Kettle Hill in Cuba atop a galloping horse and under heavy gunfire to help win an important battle in the Spanish-American War. How many politicians would do that today? At 39 years old, who alive in general would do that today? Number four, the man led an African hunting safari and a dangerous South American jungle expedition after being president of the United States. What former president has done anything half that exciting after retiring from office since? And number five, new info. Teddy Roosevelt was a fighter for his entire life and literally fought for almost his entire life, taking his boxing, uh, you know, the, the sport his dad taught him as a kid, all the way to the White House. While president, he regularly stood toe-to-toe and went blow for blow against former professional boxers and other sparring partners brought in to fight him. <laughs> and they didn't take it easy on him. He finally gave up uh, boxing specifically when a punch from a young artillery officer smashed a blood vessel, according to some sources, detached a retina, according to others, and left him nearly blind in his left eye. And he didn't just box while in the White House. According to sports writer John Finkel, boxers, wrestlers, martial artists, it didn't matter to Roosevelt. If they'd be willing to punch him in the face or pin him to the ground, he'd take them on. He felt it was the only way he could maintain his natural body prowess. Awesome. Time suck. Top five takeaways. So that was Teddy Roosevelt, man. You don't have to love him, but you can't deny badass president. Teddy motherfucking Roosevelt, legend in his own time. Thanks for listening to that episode. It was a fun one to do. Fun uh, to do one that wasn't about a murderer, (laughs) you know, for this week or, you know, somebody else dark and terrifying. Not that we won't do many more of those. I do enjoy those as well. Uh, We are going to get strange again on the suck next week, looking uh, into the Heaven's Gate cult. Fascinating with that. Uh, when the, when they uh, when that one lost out to MK Ultra in the bonus suck vote recently, I told you I'd get on get it on the schedule soon, and and now it's on the schedule for this next Monday. Uh, what made thirty nine people think that they had to kill themselves to board a spaceship in March of nineteen ninety seven? How how did they possibly come to believe this was a good plan? What was the deal with their cuckoo leader, Marshall Applewhite? How great is that name, Marshall Applewhite? It's like he was destined to be a cult leader. How were these people able to take out life insurance policies that covered alien abduction? insurance. Not joking. They they actually did that. Cult members paid $1,000 on October 10th for a policy that covered up to 50 members and would pay out a million dollars per person for an alien abduction or impregnation or death caused by aliens. God, we live in a weird, weird world, don't we? And we're going to suck on one of the weirdest, oddest corners of it next week uh, with the fascinating Heaven's Gate cult episode. Special thanks to Time Suckers Andrew Wood, Brian O'Dell, at insert fake name on Twitter, and any other Time Sucker who asked for the Teddy Roosevelt episode. I hope you liked it. Special shout out to Tim Lane, friend of a coworker of my wife, who I heard is a huge Time Suck fan. Thanks to all you Time Suckers for continuing to say hi after shows, for letting me know you're still spreading the suck to coworkers, friends, and family. It means so much. 
Sorry uh, yet again to those still waiting to hear back after writing in and busting my butt. Going to get ahead on research and, and get to that. I, I, I will do it one day uh, as soon as time allows. Why does life have to be so busy? Uh, link to tour dates at timesuckpodcast.com. We can find, you know, also the, the link to Amazon, uh, the Amazon.com little button there so you can shop. And then while you're shopping at Amazon like you normally would, you can be supporting the show. I appreciate those of you who are doing that every week. It uh, means a lot. And you can also link to the Time Suck store where you can find hats, shirts, much more. I do realize I need to restock a few items. And a huge thanks uh, to those leaving those iTunes reviews. Just completed the ninth bonus episode three weeks after the eighth bonus episode. And now we're already halfway to the next bonus episode with over 950 reviews. They're so nice. Recent subject lines include Time Suck is my tribe. Me too, Chances Mom, 11703, and love, 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 yes. You're so nice, Andrew uh, T022. And first and only podcast I'll ever listen to by Bolshevik Poodle. What a great screen name. His review cracked my shit up uh, when he typed, Dan is like your grandpa in a lot of ways. He tells long stories, explains conspiracy theories, and talks constantly about the horrible people on Earth. However, unlike your grandpa, Dan is actually funny, does his research, and doesn't make you want to cut your ears off. Hail Nimrod and keep on sucking. Well, thank you. Hail Nimrod. Love it. Uh, there are negative reviews as well, uh, and that's fine. Suck isn't for everyone. I'm not going not gonna to read those here and encourage those. Uh, I am so glad it is for many of you, and, well, hopefully all of you. <laughs> and now let, uh, let's look back at some new info regarding previous episodes and uh, information, information about the show itself with some Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Starting with an update uh, from a longtime fan, uh, Bridget Thatcher. I've met her uh, many times at shows in, in Utah. I uh, love hearing from Bridget. Bridget wrote in regarding 9-11 saying, Master Time Sucker, I'm not going to lie. I was terrified to listen to the 9-11 podcast, and I found myself putting it off. Not because I was worried about how you'd portray it, but because I, I mainly listen when I drive, and everything 9-11 turns me into a sobbing mess, and that can make driving dangerous. I know that probably sounds strange. After all these years, I did not lose anyone in the attacks, but I did lose something to myself. I was 17 when it happened on delayed enlistment for the Air Force until I turned 18. I'm not sure if it was because I'd already pledged myself to defend my country and I didn't feel I was doing my duty while I was waiting or what it was, but I had them push up my basic training date to December of that year. I felt so strongly that I needed to hurry so I could do my part. I was a child, but I was a child that was fully willing to fight and give whatever I could of myself, including my life, to bring these pieces of shit down. The base I was stationed at houses the B-1 bombers that were a big part of the war. I very clearly remember standing on my back porch and listening to and participating in the cheers and cries of excitement throughout the on-base neighborhood the night it was confirmed that Osama bin Laden, intentionally uncapitalized, I love that, was killed and the small part of me healed that day. This podcast and your representation of the U.S. as a whole was healed, uh, has healed me even more and definitely more than I expected. You, you really delivered, Dan, as you always do. I was not in a heap of tears throughout the podcast like I thought I would be, and I actually felt some relief when I found myself laughing. I did cry at the end, though. Safely in my house, not driving, hearing about the heroism and selflessness that happened on that day always gets me. Thank you. Uh, the one shout-out that I felt like was missing was to air traffic control, the chaos that ensued after the events and the way they handled it. Getting every single aircraft that was in the sky onto the ground must have been so stressful, and they navigated it all within hours of realizing what had happened. While they weren't necessarily putting themselves directly in harm's way, they still were an integral to the fight to protect the United States. So many heroes that day. Thank you again for doing this podcast. All hail Nimrod, and I'll keep on sucking as long as you keep putting the suck out there. God damn. Thank you, Bridget. Uh, man, you, you Air Force badass, you. My God. I didn't even know that about you. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you got something out of looking back today, and you're right. A lot of heroes that day. Thanks for sharing some new insight. Uh, hail Nimrod. Another update came in from Hannah Weatherwax about the Salem Witch Trials, and it is uh, hilarious. So we're going to go from 
uh, dramatically meaningful to uh, ridiculously hilarious. Hannah wrote in saying, hey, Master Sucker, just wanted to update you on Thomas Granger and the specific problems with bestiality that occurred in early settlements. He was one of the first people put to death in the Plymouth, co- in the Plymouth Colony. He was convicted of buggery with a mare, a cow, two goats, sheep, two calves, and a turkey. My point is that there definitely were issues with bestiality in the U.S., and Thomas Granger definitely had a fetish for livestock. Uh, There was definitely good reason for having laws against bestiality in the legal code. Also, I'm happy that my 11th grade U.S. history class is finally coming to good use. Hail Nimrod. Hannah Weatherwax. Oh, my God. That That is amazing and disturbing. Who's fucking a turkey? I guess Thomas was. Man, how is that even possible? Man, why? Is turkey sex really that much better than just jerking off? Why do people have to overly complicate their sex lives? I just don't get it. Man, thank you for enlightening me to the real problem of animal buggery in colonial America. I'll never forget that update. I just, how did they catch him? I just wondered too. Like, did he actually confess to all that? Like, did they they have a sting operation with somebody just like following him around with the notebook night after night being like, well, this God dang, he's fucking a horse now. I have to detail that. <laughs> a couple hours later, well, now somehow he got a hold of a raccoon. He's buggering that. You know, next night you're like, how did he, how did he, A, catch a squirrel? And I don't even understand how this is happening, but he's humping the shit out of that squirrel now ridiculous uh slenderman trial update from time sucker mike mead uh, another another uh, a fan of the show and, and uh who i've met several times you know chicago great dude uh 15 year old anissa weir one of the two wisconsin girls who tried to sacrifice their friend to appease the mythical slenderman when they were all just 12 was just determined uh, a couple days ago by a jury to be mentally ill at the time of that attack and now she will spend at least three years in a mental hospital instead of being sentenced to 10 plus years in prison after those three years she'll be evaluated for release every six months She's already been incarcerated, uh, just FYI, for over three years. The other stabbing participant, Morgan Geyser, has not uh, has pled not guilty to one count of attempted first-degree intentional homicide by reason of mental disease or defect. Her her trial is set to begin October 9th. Uh, I, I'm guessing she will be found not guilty if she's going for that, just because if Anissa is mentally uh, incompetent, if you've watched that, if you listen to that episode, uh, Morgan seemed to be more so. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And one last update. It's so rewarding when you guys let me know how much a suck means to you. I mean, it really does mean so much, especially when I'm tired, <laughs> running on very little sleep, trying to get to the point where this app is built, and hopefully I can hire some help uh, in addition to have the fantastic volunteers that I do. Uh, and this email just, man, felt so good uh, to receive just a few days ago. It came in from Time Sucker and fantastic human being, uh, Bill Stoff, uh, or Stow. I should have asked the pronunciation. It's always tough for me with names, as you know, listening. It's S-T-O-U-G-H. Stowe, maybe? Bill Stowe? Uh, Bill Stowe wrote in saying, Dan, you time-sucking mother, I am so happy to have been introduced to your podcast by a former student, Brad Hildebrandt. I was his high school English teacher a millennial ago. Uh, you know, hey, Mr. Stowe, he's probably a granddad. Can't seem to drop that, mister. You need to check out Dan Cummins' Time Suck. Reminds me of your style or something like that. I taught those hormone clusters for 32 years. I did, and I am caught up with your episodes. You are a natural-born teacher. You need to be in front of a class, but uh, no, it's it's great what you're doing here. You, you've unleashed, or, or, or excuse me, your unleashed approach to learning is how I would have liked to have been. I did pull on the leash. I sure would have liked to use motherfucker for the emphasis it provides. I'm on Highway 285 North in New Mexico, somewhere headed home to Denver, and, and just this minute finished, finished your Salem Witch Trials episode. Uh, I sailed into a cutout to write this. If I put it off, I won't. I don't have time to write all I'd like, but you nailed it. This is a subject I know something about, uh, having taught the Crucible off and on for three decades. Dude, it was fucking perfect, historically accurate, extremely thorough, and damn funny. I had to pull off the road a couple times to pee. Old guy, literally laughing out loud, no shit. Mouth open, loud laughter, and sudden urge to take a leak. That may be your best episode. Those Puritans were crazy motherfuckers. 
I would have loved to have been able to say that in class. Looney cocksuckers. You covered it and sucked up an hour and 44 minutes of road time. Game on. Back on the road. Bill. God dang it, Bill. You got me, man. Made me feel so good when you sent that in, man. Love you, buddy. That feedback means so much coming from a teacher, and I, and I want to use this as an excuse to thank all you teachers out there. I'm sure a lot of you wish you could drop motherfucker in classrooms from time to time. You are building the future of this world. Your cause, your vocation may seem thankless at times, but it is incredibly noble and important and beautiful. You're shaping our fucking future. You're guiding the minds that will lead the world of tomorrow. It may not seem like it at times, but you are touching young minds in an incredibly powerful way and changing the future destinies of students as you do so, as you inspire them. I had some teachers that remind me of Bill, man. Interesting, inquisitive, curious minds who made learning so much fun. I wouldn't be doing this right now without them, you know? So thanks, Mr. Updegrove. Thanks, Mrs. Bagley, Father Ryan, and the many others who pushed me to take a closer look at the world around me. You're the fucking best. Uh, so proud of my sister Donna for, for being a teacher and for being a damn good one at that. And, and that's all for today's Time Sucker Updates. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. That's it, everybody. Follow the suck on social media, Time Suckers. You suckheads at Time Suck Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Have a great week. Stay curious. And give a listen to Michael motherfucking McDonald's brand new album, Wide Open. Just dropped this past week. First new studio album in many years. Still got it. You better find it in your heart. Mm-hmm. You'll only find it in your heart now, baby. Sounds a little better when he does it. Sounds a little better when he does it. Uh, take a page from Teddy Roosevelt's playbook. Do something adventurous. Try not to get your eye punched out. And keep on sucking. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack. And save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.